1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dogs programme here on three C R eight five five on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs. Yep, it's good to have you company again because we are the dogs. We defend government schools, defenders of government schools, D O G S. Yeah, Jane's not in the studio today. Her and Joe Toscano are off on secret business. I, I could tell you, but I'd have to I'd have to punish you if I did. So Jane's not here in the studio today, it's just myself. Um, but nevertheless, the fight has to go on. Um, at the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, that's the dogs, that's us, uh, we have a habit of putting out a press release over the air every week. And Jean, before she went into her secret in-camera meeting with Joe, uh, knocked one off for me f- to share with you. Because there's been some very interesting developments brewing over the last couple of weeks, if you've been listening to the program. And that is, of course, that the, both the Catholic and the independent school systems And now feuding with each other over how much money they get from the government. And so we put the question in press release 727, has state aid alliance between the Catholic and the Protestant schools in Australia fractured? Because for almost a century, that is from 1872 to 1969, direct state aid to private schools ceased in Australia mainly because Protestant schools were prepared to be genuinely independent. This ended in Australia in 1969. Catholic schools got their state aid and wealthy Protestant schools lined up for their handouts after that. Now, since the introduction of the Labour Party needs policy, um, started in the Whitlam years, in the 70s, the Catholic sector have gained the system, and they've gained it outrageously. And periodically, auditor generals, both in various states and federal auditor generals, have gone and have a look and expressed outrage. It's just happened recently in Victoria in the last couple of years, and also in the federal sphere. They look at how all this state money is spent, and they're completely outraged. They say it's not going to the right places. The um, education systems say, "Well, you can't tell us what to do because we've got God on our side," and everything dies down. You wait another ten years, and it all happens again. But the infamous. Religious alliance between Protestants and Catholics in Australia is now under strain in their education systems. There have been a few public spats between Michelle Green from the independent, inverted commas, um, Protestant-ish sector, and Stephen Elder from the Catholic Education Office here in Victoria. Now a further funding feud between Catholic and independent schools was ignited actually just recently on the 23rd of November 2017. And the Catholic and independent sectors presented conflicting data to the new National Schools Resourcing Board. Remember, we were talking about that a couple of weeks ago, if you're a regular listener. The federal government set up a new National Schools Resorting Board, which is supposed to be independent. And so everyone gets to put their figures in and and, and tell the board what they want. Well, the Catholic and independent sectors presented conflicting data. Now this board was formed as part of the Coalition's education funding legislation based on the controversial changes to the Gonski model announced earlier this year. This board is examining how socioeconomic status calculations determine federal funding because in Australia, to our shame, how rich your parents are is the most important factor when it comes to how good an education you get. I'll say that again. How rich your parents are determines how good an education you get. Um, We are supposed to be a civilised country, yet we accept that as a fact. Anyway, the membership of this board is skewed, of course, towards the Catholic and the private sector. The people on this board are from the Catholic and independent sectors. Private schools, um, or sorry, public schools, I should say, on this board have maybe one or two supporters. This is often the way it goes in Australia. Now, the Independent Schools Council of Australia, called the ISCA, has compiled census data that it says raises questions about whether Catholic schools actually educate larger numbers of disadvantaged families. But the Catholic sector said the data is misleading and insists it is justified in finding for all of its schools to maintain low fees and remain accessible to all. Hmm. Anyway, according to the Independent Council of Skate Schools in Australia, their data says 56% of students who attend Catholic schools are from middle-income families, earning between $52 and $156,000 a year, compared with 45% for the independent sector. About 31% of students at Catholic schools are from the top income bracket of more than $156,000 per year. Yeah, they're rich. Compared with 41% of enrolments for independent schools. Almost 5% of families in the Catholic system earn a family income between three quarters of a million dollars and a bit over. That is to say, the proportion of students educated by the Catholic and independent sectors whose families fall into the lowest income bracket is actually identical, and it's 13%. I'll say that again. Both the independent and the Catholic school systems, both of them, have sectors which have been identified as educating only 13% of the lowest income bracket. Now this is in stark contrast to the claims claims that the, the, the Catholic sector in particular make, which is they teach poor kids too. Yeah, they do, but they can tell you their names because there ain't that many of them. Anyway, no mention is made of what this really means. The public system, which is open to all comers and enrols by far the greatest proportion of disadvantaged children. The Catholics and the private independent systems have always courted the respectable and aspiring classes and sent the disadvantaged down the road to the local public school, if, indeed, there is a local public school to send them to. Now, the current argument mirrors that that happened in 1973, when all this was brought before Gough Whitlam. Then, as now... The Catholic sector required the needy label so that their bureaucracy, and by the way they still have a bureaucracy, an education bureaucracy, could attract billions of public money with no strings attached. And the Protestants have gone along willingly for this right. But the genuinely needy, as well as a high percentage of Catholic students who are poor, that is, students who are Catholic, not Catholic uh, students in Catholic schools, because they're different things, have always been in the public system. Statistics don't always lie and the non-Catholic sectors are nervous and a bit less inclined to gain the system than their Catholic cousins. But don't expect too much from the statistics in the future. The transparency opened up by the posting individual school grants online is fading back into the land of the opaque as Catholic bureaucrats get their way in the corridors of power. For a couple of weeks, the government had up on their website how much money each of the schools, Catholic schools, were going to get this year, next year, and up into the future. But now, under pressure from the Catholic sectors, this information has been removed from the Commonwealth government website for no other reason than the Catholic sector said, no, we don't want people knowing how much money we get. And they've removed this data from more than 1,700 Catholic schools around Australia. We used to have this information. By the way, it's taxpayers' money we're talking about, we're not talking about how they spend their money, we're talking about how they spend our money. This, is, this, 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 this information has been removed for 1,700 Catholic schools, and so now we can't find out. Similar changes, by the way, have also been made to 18 independent school systems across Australia, including the Seventh-day Adventists, the Lutherans and the Anglicans. So perhaps some of the Protestants have been bought off once more. Now, a school-by-school breakdown of projected funding into the future, however, is still available from state schools and so-called independent schools. So the information is still there for state schools. It's just the Catholics didn't want people to know, so now we don't know. Now, the private system can fool some of the people, some of the time. The people, that, of course, it can fool are people whose interest it is to be fooled. That is, rusted on old boys, for whom the reputation of the school they went to is worth money to them, and, of course, insecure, aspirational, middle-class parents. Um, And it'll fool these people for some time, because it's one of those things they'd be happy to be fooled about. But account for all of them, all of the time. Consider, indeed, the following comments on an ABC report on this issue um, that was entitled Catholic and Independent Schools Reignite Feud Over Funding. Um, One of the comments made was by a commenter called BS Filter, Shelter. I think we know what that stands for. He says, when researching primary schools for my daughter, I found that the local Catholic primary school received more government money from the federal government and state combined than the local government school down the road. This often happens. We've highlighted this on the DOGS program. It's quoting the numbers as they're, as they're now available. Well, they're now, but they used to be available. And, of course, when fees were taken into account, received 50% more money per student than the government school down the road. All to achieve naplam results, that weren't as good as the state school down the road. So, what are they doing with the money? Harry O, also quoted on on the website in response to this ABC article, he says, Look, I have a friend who's a teacher at a Catholic school, says Harry O. Fees are an minimum of $30,000 per annum, and increase each year by $50,000 as the children get older, and as, as fees increase in private schools, well above CPI. Plus, parents must cover full costs for excursions, uniforms, books, sports equipment, and a building fee, just to name a few. The school provides nothing for free. Also, the students must attend Bible study and the religious activities on a monthly basis, and their parents must attend as well. In other words, they are believers in the Bible, so they actually discriminate as, as they do not take just anyone. They are a religious school. Now, as they charge fees, they should get less than the public system. Same as, same as independent schools that charge fees. And, by the way, this person's friend, who's a teacher there, or a worker in the school, gets paid $156,000 per annum. Now, a teacher in a public school doing the same job gets around $76,000. Now, this private school is magnificent. It has massive sporting angles, huge halls, brilliant classrooms, and all, that is, all the current technology. Much more than the surrounding public schools. I don't mind funding to help poorer private schools, says this caller, but I do remember Howard increasing funding for private schools, because, he stated, private schools have better outcomes and so deserve extra money over public schools. Well, this is what Howard said, and, of course, this isn't what's happened. Now, Pen Pen, another commenter on this, says a religiously based organisation, a Catholic group nowadays. lying in pursuit of more money? Say so it's not so, says Pen Pen. And Argus Card, someone who's actually willing to put their name to this, says, I don't see why Catholic schools should receive preferential treatment over other private schools. It sounds like Catholic schools have been warting the system for a long time. Well, it sounds like, Argus uh, Card, they have been, uh, demonstrably so. Um, the fact that it's not a scandal is the fact that uh, we as a country, many people in this country, really quite enjoy not knowing about that. It is a, it is a, it's a truism worth say, stating again, if you want to find out where corruption is in any culture or any society or any country, you just go into an aspirational middle class dinner party and find out what no one wants to talk about. I'm mean, sure in some countries they won't want to talk about um, nepotism about how people get jobs in government. <laughs> I'm sure in some countries they won't want to talk about uh, how you get by uh, making sure the police don't, don't, don't annoy you as a business person. <laughs> I'm sure that's, that's not to be spoken about for aspirational middle classes in some countries. In Australia, um, you don't want to talk about private school funding and aspirational middle class because they'll, just eat, they'll, they'll either ignore you or, or just come up with a whole series of arguments to do with whatever it is, but they certainly won't want to talk about it because it makes them feel uncomfortable. And so I put it to you, dear listeners, that um, not only is the Catholic system in this particular instance seeking to create opacity in terms of how much public funding is spent, um, they're doing it not necessarily for reasons that are for the benefit of the society as a whole. And as Jean, which she was here, would say, the Catholic school system's never been interested in educating all the children. They just want to pick and choose the ones they want. And that's not just in terms of religion, but it turns out it's also in terms of how wealthy the parents are and their ability to pay. You've been listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM door. We're going to a break, and just to cheer us up, I'm going to fill us in on a state school, a great state school. So if you want to find out about a great state school, just hang along. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent, or if you're a kid, or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever, and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick, secondary school.
0: State College. schools
2: are
1: great. Harkaway Primary, Harkaway Primary School. State Sunshine school. North Primary School. They're really school. concerned about the
0: welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Got,
1: like You put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking...
0: Actually, an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs.
1: More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're and that's who, that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the when weekly like few... assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a, a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words it is
1: actually... So, so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom.
0: That's a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning.
1: State schools are great schools.
2: Great state schools.
0: Is that too late? Disability Day 2017, 3CR, from 7am to 7pm on Sunday, December the 3rd. Most of the shows, you know, with lots of surprises chucked in along the way. Go to 3cr.org.au to check out the grid for the day. You'll enjoy it.
1: Welcome back to the Dogs Programme here on 3CR 855 under AM. Oh, it's good to have you company again. Yeah, let's have some good news. I want to talk about a great state school. And it's not in Melbourne. It's in the country. In fact, it's in, not in the country. It's in the regional town. It's in Horsham. I really want to talk about Horsham College in Horsham. Horsham College in Horsham is... Well, you make up your own mind. I reckon they're doing some amazing things. But everything I'm about to tell you, everything I'm about to tell you that they're doing, they are doing for $14,000 per kid per year. You know what I'm saying about, you know, kids and education and how much you need to spend on a kid to give them a gold standard education in a secondary college? Yeah, between thirteen dollars and $14,000, Horsham are doing it on that amount of money. So you go, are they doing a good job? Are they doing a bad job? Let me tell you, because in many ways, we're talking about state schools or great schools. I'm talking about Horsham College, but in all sorts of ways, I'm talking about what Horsham College is giving up. I'm talking about the kids who don't go to Horsham College on purpose. They have a really interesting program out of there. But all of this, by the way, all this funding um, for what they do, which I'll fill you in on in a minute, is for 14000 bucks a year per kid. And this information I'm getting from the New Daily, which is a website associated with the ABC, um, and what Horsham College has done is that they've got some kids which are disengaged with school, seriously disengaged with school, so what have they done? Um, They said, that's okay, you don't have to come. But not just that, it's the next bit that matters, which is being run out of Horsham College. Because the Victorian authorities, the state school authorities, are rolling out new laws and flexible school programs in a bid to get teenagers off the streets and out of the courtrooms. The changes recognise rehabilitation as the best way to re-engage troubled young people. Now a phone call home would not mean much to a couch-surfing teen who's not actually at home, who has no contact with his parents at all. Now, Jack, not his real name, who's one of the kids in Horsham, said... Look, I only went to school for one week this year. Obviously, I can get away with it, so I just stopped going. That's what Jack said. He's 16. It might be against the law for young people aged between 6 and 17 to skip school, but authorities are realising discipline is not always the answer. So, just think about it. You're 16, you're not turning up to school, you're not having anything to do with your parents, for whatever reason, obviously not good, and someone gives you a phone call home and say, oh, it's terrible, you've got to get your kid back in, and the parents go, who? Don't know him. (laughs) So what do you do in that situation? And that's not an uncommon situation in Victoria these days. Now, Jack should have been attending Horsham College in regional Victoria, but for now has completely disengaged. When a new principal took over in Horsham about four years ago, one in five students at Horsham was disengaged and enrolled in alternate programs. For an equal number of students, about 20% of the 900 or so kids enrolled, both parents were unemployed. Now I'm going to stop there. I'm going to tell you the exact figures for what's going on in this school in terms of their SES or their, what they call Ixia breakup. In Australia, if you want to get data on this, everything's, you know, it's a numbers thing, everything's broken into quarters. So you've got the lowest quartile, the sort of not, the next, next quartile up, then you get the middle, and on top of the middle you have the the quartile just above the middle, and then you have the top quartile. Top quartiles, people, you know, on quarter of a million a year and up. At Horsham, 44% of the kids are in the bottom quartile. That is, they are the poorest, come from the poorest families in Australia. 31% come from the quartile above that. So, if you add those two up, you've got 75% of the kids and the poorest half of Australia. Only 7% of the kids are from the richest kids in Australia. That's in the top quartile. So that's Horsham. It's it's a country school. It takes everyone. It's a state school, again, so it takes everyone. And there's kids in this school, and that's about one in five of these kids that really just don't want to be there. Um, For all sorts of reasons, they come from families where both parents are unemployed. Last year at Horsham, um, of the students there, 20 became pregnant. This year, 12 became pregnant and there are 17 students in out-of-home care. Jack says, Ah, oh, look, mate, I just live in the lounge room uh, with four other mates. Teenagers at the Horsham Skate Park told the ABC, which is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, for those people who still think that such things exist, still does, hopefully for much longer, I don't know. Anyway, teenagers at the Horsham Skate Park mentioned that sex and drug use started at the age of 11, usually in Horsham. Now, Jack not his real name, was using drugs and engaging in other criminal activity when he was about 11, but has since found a new group of friends. He says, one of my old mates got me back into riding scooters, he says. Riding's the thing thing that stopped basically me doing drugs and all that. It's typical of a regional Australian community where drugs, teenage pregnancy, homelessness and family breakdowns are causing young people to drop out of the education system. The further a school is, from a city centre the worse the attendance rates. Nationally, more than one in five students will miss at least 10% of a school year. In regional areas, a quarter of kids are going to miss more than 10% of the classes. In remote Australia, one in three. That's shocking. Now, the law these days in Victoria recognises there is a link between not turning up to school and crime. Um, yeah, duh, (laughs) if you're not turning up to school, there is a higher chance you'll be doing crime. Anyway, Victoria is in the process of rolling out new laws that will see courts interact directly with schools. As of June, magistrates will be able to hand out youth control orders with mandatory requirements that a young criminal attend school or training. The orders will also force young people to engage with other rehabilitative services such as drug and alcohol counselling. Now, the Victorian Legal Aid Criminal Law Executive Director, Helen Futuros, said there was a clear link between school disengagement and youth crime. Wow, they've just discovered this. Isn't this wonderful? But now they're doing something about it at Horsham. Now, Youth Parole Board figures said that 56% of young offenders who have been in detention have previously been expelled or suspended from school. I'm I'm surprised it's not more. The research and evidence tells that are far more likely to grow out of offending with the right intervention and support at the earliest possible point. Now, at this point, I'd like to say to people, say, well, you know, if they're young tearaways or hooligans or whatever you want to call them, lock them up. You know, they they do the crime, they do the time. Um, If you're a child, there's a chance that you can be turned around, a chance that you can be turned around and not do another crime. If you get locked up, statistics show you're pretty much certain to go out and do another crime, which means you'll stay in the system, you'll stay in the incarceration system for the rest of your life. And quite frankly, I like my money too much to be spending it on stuff like that. If you can spend money up front to keep kids out of jail, that um, it means you're keeping adults out of jail too, because that's who they grow into. Anyway, Ms Fatura said, the media coverage on youth crime was often sensationalist, with public pressure on authorities to adopt a harder approach. She says... We've got to start by having more sophisticated conversations, not demonising young people or working from a position of fear. Safety so doesn't come from locking kids up. Safety comes from actually teaching them there's another way and then giving them the opportunity to, to, to follow that other way and actually be law abiding citizens. Now the magistrate, this magistrate says, and I think she's really hit the nail on the head, lack of aspiration among teen criminals is a major problem. A magistrate, Mark Stratton, who oversees eight courtrooms in regional Victoria, describes the poverty of aspiration among teen criminals. He says, when you think about it, if you've got nothing to aspire to, life takes on a completely different colour. That's one of the characteristics of people who generally get involved in criminal behaviour. The long-term view, just hope for these kids for themselves, gets pushed aside. Mr Stratman said, young people need to be initiated into the culture before they could be inspired to contribute to the culture. The first place we do this is through educational facilities. The first place we do this is through schools, primary schools and secondary schools, primary schools and secondary schools like Horsham. Now schools are granted extra government funding to build academic performance and target at-risk youth and that's what Horsham is doing. When Principal Robert Pryors took over Hawthorne College four years ago, he decided to spend the funding in a new way. He said, right, we could have added extra teaching staff, but but what we've done is added extra expertise in intervention, in social work and welfare, he said. The students who we were seeing not engaging were ones who had issues in those areas and needed support to be able to re-engage and keep within the system. Alternative Programs Assistant Principal Adam Ross said the number one factor when it came to truancy was lack of what he would call parental push, because there are no parents on the scene. It was just a constant battle between what they experienced 80% of their time and what we get them to do with 20% of their time, he said. There is drug use in the community for some of these kids, and sometimes the drug use is at home. The more we can get them to school and show them a pathway, we're actually making a difference. Now, is this making a difference? Well, Hawthorne College is seeing results. In the past year, there have been 14% increase in attendance among students in the alternative programs, so attendance is going up. VCAL completion rates have jumped from 14 in 2014 to 120 in 2017. From a program that some, that some, that some was hidden away, we're actually starting to now celebrate it because we've taken a lot of pride in it. Mr. Pryor said. In our parent opinion survey, general satisfaction was single figures in 2014. Now, parental satisfaction is at 89%. Now, that is extraordinary. That's extraordinary for a number of reasons. But let's just go back to the, the, the data about these kids at Horsham College. Remember, 75% of them come from the poorest half of Australia, 44% come from the lowest quartile. And from what we've read in that article, when I say the lowest quartile, I mean the lowest bit of the lowest quartile. We've got kids that aren't even at home. So you're taking those kids. What are they doing with them academically? Let's just have a look at the raw numbers. For reading, writing, spelling, grammar and numeracy, which are all the things that are measured on NAPLAN, the Horsham College... Is doing better, or significantly better, than all similar schools on all measures, across both year seven and year nine. Get that right. Compared to similar schools, that is schools that enrolled the similar type of um, make up of kids, they are doing better, or significantly better. And compared to all schools around in Australia, including all the rich ones, if you throw them all in together, they are doing just fine. They're not falling behind. There's no red on their, there's no red on their exam when it comes to the school exam. So that's what they're doing. And they're doing that with $14,000 per kid per year. Bargain. Now if you go to the private school down the road, fees are over 20000 $20,000 the parent coughs up. More money than the government spending on the kids in Horsham and you're getting less value. And in the private school down the road, do you know what? These kids aren't there. These kids we're talking about, these kids that are at risk, they're not the private school, are they? Because private schools consider such students to be charity cases that they might take on if they happen to be smart. The state school system, and Horsham in particular, has a completely different set of values. And this is where I want to talk about the values debate at Horsham College. And Horsham College in Horsham, Victoria, they have values, and the values are not only if you turn up, will we educate you? We don't care who you are. And if you're not turning up because you are completely off the rails, we're going to get out there and we're going to get you in the door because that's what you need. Education's what you need, not just for your own benefit, but to keep you off the streets and to keep you out of jail. Horsham College are going out there, getting the kids and keeping the kids. And the other thing that's... And and, and the principal hints at it. He said, when we started this, we didn't tell anyone. Remember that? He said, oh, look, we were a bit ashamed about this whole process. But now it has been going for four years. We're proud of it. And that is because I personally have been involved in schools that have done the same thing. They've taken the disaffected kids and they've taken them away from the whole thing about normal schooling and then given those opportunities. And when they do that, the local parent community goes, oh, so you've got all these bad kids and we know about it now. I don't want to send my child there because then they'll be hanging out with all the bad kids and the enrolment's full. And so the school then has to hide away the fact that they're doing this because the local parent community, aspirational parent community, deserts the school. Well, anyone's got to do with Country Victoria means that if you've got a local high school in Horsham, you don't have many choices. So I suppose that's true. So what Horsham has done is they've done it, and now they can stand proud doing it, and all of the parents are satisfied with this. All of the parents think that educating all the children to the best of all their abilities is a good thing, and so your parents' satisfaction survey is going on. So not just congratulations to Horsham College, congratulations to Horsham, congratulations to the parents for saying it's not just about my kid, but it's about all the kids, and that's what's going to get us to survive. And this is something you will never get, ever get in a private school, because that's just not what they do. They don't educate all the people all the time in a way that's offensive to none. That's not their brief. So congratulations to Horsham, and I'd just like to say again, state schools are great schools, certainly in Horsham. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state
0: school is a great school State schools are great
1: schools. School of the week State schools School, school great of the school. week Great state schools the state, state schools, schools school state are great of the week, schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program and Welcome back to the Dogs Program Yes, on 3CR 855 On the AM dial And on the WWWs Yeah, awesome it's a nice thing to say. I'm going to talk about another school. I can't say it's a great school because it hasn't opened yet, but I still want to talk about it. It's a state school that's opening in South Melbourne. Yay! It's a new state school in the inner city. Boy, do we need some of those. Anyway, it actually hasn't opened yet, but this new, this new primary school, state school, is already sending out rejection letters to the parents can it? It hasn't even opened, and they're already sending out rejection letters. Demand for this brand-new school, which hasn't opened yet, is intense, with 105 students enrolled in the inaugural prep class. It's going to be called the Farrar Street School, and it's going to open in 2018 and has space for 525 students, straight up. That's a lot of kids in a, in a, in a primary school, but there you go, 525 kids. If the scramble for places continues, the first, Victoria's first vertical state school, so it's actually built in an office block, will soon be over its capacity by more than 200 students. That is, over 700 students want to go there, but they've only got space for 525. (sighs) Other state schools actually opening next year are facing a similar fate. The situation speaks indeed for the huge demand for inner city schools and also in the sprawling growth corridors of Melbourne. I'm quoting here from a, an article published on November the 28th by Henrietta Cook from the Age website, so if you want to check me, you can go for that. But um, look, in a Facebook post last month, South Melbourne primary school said parents outside the boundary will have received a rejection letter as the boundary rules are being strictly applied due to high demand for places. Siona Martin has had a nervous wait to find out if her four-year-old Christian has been accepted into the new school. She says, we're right on the border and we're waiting for the final zoning, she said. Some of her friends weren't so lucky. I know a couple of fam- families who missed out, which is really disappointing, but I think that it's a, it's, it's a reality of government schools and zoning policies, she says. It's hoped that the opening of the nearby South Melbourne Primary School in 2019 will ease some of the pressure. Existing schools in the area, and I do happen to know this, are already incredibly overcrowded. The nearby Port Melbourne Primary School, which is there already, was actually built to house 300 students. That's, three, that's a nice primary school. Um, as of 2017, have a guess how many kids were enrolled in there. 820. 820 kids in a school designed to house 300 South Melbourne Primary has hardly made a dent in Port Melbourne's prep enrolments, which will drop by 20 students to 115 next year. So, yeah, the idea is you build a new school, it takes you, you can sort of take pressure off the, the Port Melbourne Primary School, but no, <laughs> only 20 less kids out of 820 are going to go through the school. Wow. And, and, by the way, that is drop of 20, so there's now only 115 students enrolling in prep at Port Melbourne Primary. And, yes... <laughs> 105 students are going to be enrolled in the new South Melbourne, so kids are popping out everywhere. Well, you build all the flats in the Centre of Melbourne, that's what you're going to get. But the government insists it can keep up with demand. The Education Minister, James Molino, in, in, in response to this problem, says there's a pipeline of 56 new state schools which will accommodate 70,000 new enrolments in the government school sector. He says, and I quote, this is Mr Molino, he says, we know our state is growing faster than any other and the inner city is no different. Next year, of course, the government will open more state schools, in fact, 11 new state schools. Tarnit West Primary School is among them and it has 138 prep enrolments. The school has a capacity of 475 students, but if current enrolment trend continues, it will actually have to make space for 1,000. at a Tarnit. Though Morris Secondary is in a similar situation with 150 Year 7 enrolments next year. Less capacity for 650 students, but if demand continues, Glomora Secondary is going to have to accommodate 900 instead of 650, an extra one-third. Richmond High. Oh, back to Richmond High. Remember Richmond High, dear listeners? <laughs> anyway. Uh, Richmond High, Taylors Hill West Secondary College, Gumscrub Creek Primary, Edgar Creek Secondary College, which also open next year, face more manageable enrolment growths the probable probably exception of Richmond High because they've already rezoned it to exclude all the people who bought houses to send their kids there. The education academic Emma Rowe from Deakin University said Victoria has enough schools to meet the demand. She said the problem is that parents, and this is what we've always said, parents avoid certain schools because they perceive they are under-resourced or underfunded. But she said the effect of the film of Premier Jeff Kennett, remember him? closing all the inner-city schools that we now have to reopen at, at, the, at all these at this cost, the problems just kind of just closing all these schools in the first place are still being felt. He said reopening schools is a lot more expensive than keeping them going. And that's what we have to do, because he closed them. Now the principal of the yet-to-be-open South Melbourne Primary School, Noel Crease, says he always anticipated high levels of interest in the school. Um, Noel says, and I quote, I think the sense of newness and the originality of the design of the school is integral to the public interest. Ms Martin said she was impressed by the school's modern design, flexible learning areas, and Mr Crease's track record opening two other schools in the past. She also liked the fact the school was new, so parents could create its community and culture. This is exciting, she says. We can create a wonderful place for our kids and the future. Isn't that fascinating? I think it is. It's part of the new trend. We have, at one end of the spectrum, the independent school system and the Catholic school system desperately trying to bully the Federal Education Minister into making all their funding opaque and fighting each other for scraps, not for scraps, they're fighting each other for the money that should be going to state schools in the first place and screaming and shouting and saying it's all terribly unfair. And at the other end, you've got these state schools opening up and look, the parents have now woken up saying, I want to send my of kids to a state school. I want it to be a good state school, but I want to send them to a state school. Give me one. As soon as they open up, they get massively oversubscribed, and you have to open up another one. Australia seems to have woken up a little bit. They've woken up that education is a right, not a privilege. Education is something that you deserve as a taxpayer for your child, rather than something you have to pay for to separate them off from all the other children, which is the private school system. I think it's absolutely fascinating. We will indeed return uh, with more of the Dogs Program after these messages. Sometimes when you need help most, it can be
0: really hard to speak up. If you need things like food, a place to stay, or counselling support, there's no shame when you ask Izzy. Askizzy.org.au is a website that helps you find what you need now and nearby. It's made for mobile and all searches are anonymous. Plus, there are no data fees if you're on the Telstra network. No shame, just ask Izzy. That's A-S-K-I-Z-Z-Y dot A 3CR supporter.
1: This year, thousands of people seeking asylum will spend another holiday season incarcerated in offshore prison camps and Australian detention centres. Men, women and children are separated from their families, living in horrendous conditions and have no certainty of their future. Join the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre to let them know that they are not alone and we hear their plea for safety. Sign the open letter to deliver a message of hope to people seeking asylum and refugees by Christmas. Visit addmyvoice.org.au, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 under AM dial and podcast on the WWWs. If you're interested in what I'm talking about, of course, you can check me out. Check out the Dogs, the Defenders of Government Schools, on our website at www.adogs.info. And www.adogs.info. So, there is a movement. It's a, it's, it's a demonstrable movement now in the, in the, in the 20-teens um, of parents wanting to send their children to state schools more than private schools. There's a whole value for money thing going on too, but there's lots of other reasons. I mean, if I was in Horsham, I'd be sending my kid to Horsham. <laughs> Absolutely. But the other reason, of course, is that parents in this very internet-savvy world are looking for value. There's been an interesting new study which has backed up a whole heap of other interesting new studies which have been going on for years and years and years, which said, which basically say also the same thing. If you go into a state school and you get to university you're more than twice as likely to get a better degree and to get better marks in it. I'll say that again. If you go to a state school, not a private school, you are going to be twice as likely, more than two, two to one, if you go to a state school, than a graduate who went to private school, of getting a better degree. That is to say, private schools are rubbish for preparing kids for university. State schools, in comparison, are better. And this study, is, it's, it's an English study, but I think it's very... You, we're going to go to England now, talk about what they're doing, because I think it informs Australia. Because whatever happens in England usually happens in Australia about three years later. That's just the way we are. Students who go to state schools are more likely to leave university with a first, which is sort of a good degree, or, or, or a, or a two-one, which is a second first, than graduates who went to a private school. Analysis of degree outcomes at um, the Oxford universities <laughs> that's Oxford and Cambridge universities show. Mr Cuddy, connected with the Higher Education Funding Council of Victoria, found a significant correlation between students' backgrounds and their level of achievement, with black and ethnic minorities in, in the UK at a particular advantage, a particular disadvantage and women outperforming men. Now in terms of school background, it was found that 82% of state school leavers who graduated from English universities back in 2014 achieved a first or a 2-1, and this compares to 73% of um, private school students. Now, the difference was not significant between students' additional different educational backgrounds with the highest A-levels, so if you're smart, you're smart, but was more marked among students who, in, who, who weren't getting the sort of best marks that they could in high school. Other variables such as subjects of study explained five percentage points of difference, so, you know, some subjects are harder than others. Um, and, this, and there were some other things, but the gap, the sort of private-public gap with private being better, remains. Now, Les Ebden, over there in the UK, who is the Director of the Fair Access to Higher Education, said state school students arrived at university with untapped potential. He says private schools do a very good job and produce students with grades that maximise their potential. Many state school students could have performed even better if they had opportunities that the private schools did uh, Sir Peter Lample, Chairman of the Sutton Trust, said universities should do more to take account of the opportunities available to young people when making decisions on admissions. as we know that state school students are underrepresented at university, particularly those from less advantaged backgrounds in the most selective universities. But the fact that they are more likely to get a better degree than their private school peers shows how important it is to improve access to help able young people to fulfil their potential. Isn't that fascinating? And of course... If I get really cynical, that, that factor, the fact that state school kids do better at university than private school kids, is exactly what certain aspirational parents are wanting to fight. Certain aspirational parents, when they, want, when they send their child to a private school, they are wanting to buy, with money, cash money up front, a head start for their child. So they want their child to do better than the child down the road, even if they're not necessarily academically gifted. They're buying an advantage, but of course, when it gets to university, all of those factors fall apart. And so I suppose this is this is this is highlighting what those parents, those aspirational parents, who want to buy their students the best education possible, and they don't care how much it costs. Um, this justifies what they're saying. They're saying this. This is saying that. Yeah, if you buy your student, if you buy your child, I should say, a private education, they are more likely to get to university. What this is also saying is that once they get there, they're not going to do as well. Well, we're going to stay in the UK for a little bit. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that what's happening in the UK at the moment politically is going to be reflected in Australia quite soon. Because if you hear the current education minister and the previous education minister, even the one before that, there's, the fo- there's often this focus on education being a good because education can lead to what they call social mobility. That is to say that if you get a good education, you can move up in the world. If you get ed- in, in, in the UK, if you get a good education, you can go from working class to middle class. If you get a good education, you can have social mobility and go from middle class to upper class. This concept of education and social mobility being the same thing good education, good social mobility. This is now actually being called into question by Jeremy Corbyn and the Labor Party over there, and I think it's actually a really interesting philosophical argument that's worth expanding here on the DOGS program, because it's an argument we're going to have here in Australia because we are very quickly developing a class structure here in Australia. Do you remember, do you remember Australia, that egalitarian place? that maybe never existed, but at least we pretended it did. Now we are creating a class structure. If you go out into the world of Melbourne and talk to someone you don't know in a social setting, there's a pretty good chance, I don't know what circles you're moving in, there's a pretty good chance if it's a polite society, you will at some point be asked what school you went to. You'll be asked what school you went to. And that is the class system. That question is a class-based question. It's not who are you and what do you know. It's what school did you go to. How can I place you? Are you upper class? Are you working class? Are you a state school child? Which state school? Was it a good state school? It was a private school. Ah, yes, that's fine. I can talk to you some more. So, yeah, what they're saying in, in Labor at the moment is that social mobility is not a good goal for education. This movement from you know from, from a lower class to an upper class is not actually the goal of education. And this article starts, a very interesting article, um, it's actually from the Guardian website. Um, it starts, it was on the 1st of August this was published, but I think it's still relevant. And it says, remember Nick Clegg? Nick Clegg was, um, I think, a a Liberal Democrat or something over there. Back in 2010, the then-Deputy Prime Minister declared that reducing inequality was for old progressives. For new progressives, such as him and his progressive mates, David Cameron, the priority was reducing the barriers to social mobility, primarily through education. Now, Justine Greening has just become the latest in a long procession of Education Ministers determined to improve social mobility, In her case, it's by making it the guiding mission of the Department of Education to help the talented to the top. What this means is, equality is dead. Long live sharp elbows. Sound familiar in the Australian context? But now, finally, there is a challenge to this. Labor's 2017 manifesto notably omits any mention of social mobility from its educational goals. Instead, it emphasises fairness. Jeremy Corbyn's team has grasped two facts that elude most politicians. First, education alone can't affect social transformation. Second, the Social Mobility Commission recently revealed that two decades of educational strategies to improve social mobility, so this has been going on for two, two decades, two, 20 years in, in the UK, completely failed. Those who assume education can bring about social mobility hark back to what Angela Rayner Shadow Education Secretary is rightly called the mythical golden age of post-war grammar schools. It is true that between 1945 and the 1970s, a larger proportion of children ended up in higher social classes than their parents, than ever before or since. But this wasn't thanks to grammar schools. Those very few working class pupils were disproportionately likely to leave by 16 with minimal qualifications. What made the difference was Labour's investment in public sector employment. Education can't create jobs. Governments can. Labour also understands that social mobility is undesirable as an educational goal. In the post-war years, opportunities in the professions and other well-paid, secure jobs expanded, benefiting huge numbers of people. But today, social mobility means a scramble for the few jobs that offer security. Educators are expected to identify and help those intelligent enough to merit the top university places and top jobs. But there's no risk robust measure of intelligence, which is now widely accepted to be a situation-specific and developed through life, not to be fixed at the age of 10 to 16. The majority of children on gifted and talented programs introduced by new labour are from middle-class backgrounds. In an unequal society, those with something to lose do everything to maintain advantage for their children. I'll say that again. In an unequal society, those with something to lose do everything to maintain advantage for their children. Most seriously, social mobility reinforces social inequality. Policymakers inaccurately equate the two, but social mobility agenda assumes we're stuck with a hierarchical society. Its supporters uncritically accept that there are top universities, the Russell Group of Universities, and leading professions, defined as greenings law, medicine and banking. Notably, education meant to deliver so much isn't a sector that the talented are encouraged to actually enter themselves. This approach has served most educational institutions badly. The focus on widening access to the Russell Group institutions, which are the richest universities in the UK, has had no discernible effect on their student bodies, but has ensured politicians and the media have overlooked the gross underfunding of adult and further education. And the social mobility agenda ultimately reinforces the Russell Group's claim to represent our best universities. This has been unquestioningly accepted by politicians, perhaps because so many of them were educated in these institutions. In reality, the Russell Group is a self-selecting band of university managers named after nothing more than the highbrow rich hotel in which they first met, in the Russell Hotel. Of course, there's much more to be done to ensure working-class children are able to enter our more socially exclusive universities. Labor's plan to abolish tuition fees and reintroduce maintenance grants are an excellent start, and has already transformed the political debate over when fees will be raised into a discussion about how long they can survive. But Labor's National Education Service proposal goes further still. The social mobility agenda has been lamentably unambitious Its focus on the talented few offers no hope for the many. Its narrow focus on employability compares badly with Labor's emphasis on lifelong learning for skills, creativity and cultural enrichment. By asserting that fairness and comprehensive provision are vital education aims, Labor is offering a radical alternative. The Labor frontbench, several of whom are alumni of adult education, colleges and polytechnics, aren't content to simply focus on getting a few children into the supposedly top institutions. Instead, they are inviting a national debate about what constitutes a good education. And how all of us, young and old, can indeed enjoy it. You've been listening to the Dogs Programme here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. It's been good to have you company. We'll be returning just briefly after this.
2: Darabin City Council is currently undertaking community consultation for the Northcote Aquatic and Recreation Centre (NARC). If you are currently using, have used in the past or don't currently use the centre, we want to hear from you. To provide feedback, please go to yoursaydarabin.com.au forward slash NARC or collect hard copies from NARC reception or Preston Customer Service Centre. Community consultation closes Sunday, 10th of December. A 3CR
0: Supporter
1: Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR, 855 on the AM We're well, coming to the end of the program now. I just thought I'd share one little interesting thing. I'd like to share why one Hong Kong-born mother won't send her kid to a selective school. Now, the usual teenage angst aside, Hong Kong-born Christian Ho thoroughly enjoyed her formative years spent in a selective high school for academic high achievers. Dr Ho recalls the school was great, they certainly encouraged freedom of thought, she said. Most of all, she hailed her former peers in high regard and said she learned a lot from them. Yet, Dr Ho, who researches diversity as a senior lecturer in social and political sciences at the UTS Sydney, is decidedly against sending her her two children to a selective state, high school. The reason... Well, according to her, the ethnic makeup of selective schools is now no longer reflective of Australian society. In Dr Ho's graduating class of 1991, Asians were a minority. Today, there are more than 20 fully selective high schools in New South Wales and 25 partially selective high schools. And students with Asian backgrounds dominate most public high schools for gifted and talented students. A disproportionately large majority of the elite New South Wales institutions are in New South Wales and education commentators estimate that some Sydney school populations could be as high as 90% Asian Australians. For Dr Ho, aged now 43, this racially skewed environment is not what she wants for her her kids. Ideally, schools are microcosms of society where children learn everyday multiculturalism in an organic way. Dr Ho says this is less likely to occur in schools that do not reflect the ethnic and cultural makeup of their wider communities. I think that's really interesting. She says, while there's little evidence that racial tensions exist in classrooms, race is a key factor in how kids see themselves and each other in selective schools, or indeed in any schools. I could go on about this, but I I think this is absolutely fascinating because this is, of course, what um, private schools are. Uh, they, they select students on the basis of religious difference, not racial difference uh, but the whole point of sending your child to a, to a private school is to, is to send them and separate them out from the other children, that's what a private school is functionally for um, and if you are for, of a particular religious persuasion and want your child growing up in that tradition, I think that's absolutely fine as do everyone here at the Dogs it's just, as we keep saying here you pay for it it's not my job to pay for your choices But until next week, when you can catch up with us here on the website at www.adogs.info, it's bye for now.
2: But Joel, he ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In City, just as I am standing by my.